This is IVP. If you're the kind of person who loves the stories behind the stories, check out the Every Voice Now podcast, which features the often unknown publishing journeys of authors of color. If you're a writer of color or you care about writers of color, you'll be so inspired by these stories and you'll appreciate the words written by these authors all the more. The Every Voice Now podcast is an InterVarsity Press production. Visit everyvoicenow.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I am here with Caitlin Schuss, who is a writer, author, and THD. This is a doctorate in theology student at Duke Divinity School studying political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation. She is the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, and The Ballot and the Bible. I like that title, how scripture has been used and abused in American politics and where we go from here. And that's coming out August 2023. So welcome, Caitlin, to The Disruptors. Thanks so much, Nancy. So Caitlin, I was reading the Liturgy of Politics and I love this passage. I'm going to just say it a little bit and then I want you to comment more about it. So the passage is, we need to unlearn our bent toward a private religion and a public politics and see our participation in political life as a reflection of our very public faith. So we need to understand that our political participation is just as formative as the more, quote unquote, spiritual activities we participate in individually or communally. Can you say more about this? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, wrote that book kind of in the aftermath of 2016. I was moving from college to seminary during that really tumultuous election and had grown up with a kind of standard evangelical perspective that to be a Christian is to be a Republican and it's kind of simple what how you make political decisions. It's like, you don't have to do a lot of thinking. Your church kind of tells you what to do. And post-2016, I watched a lot of my peers, especially my peers who were in seminary studying to be pastors or to be teachers or counselors. And many of us were really horrified by 2016 and didn't really know how to respond well to it. But what I watched a lot of people do is say, okay, look, we've got this really messy history of evangelicalism's tight relationship with the Republican Party. And so maybe the response we should have to get us out of this is just to say, no, those are separate things. Faith and politics are in different worlds. What happens in the church is completely different from what happens in a voting booth, and they shouldn't be connected. And I think there was a good impulse there to disentangle um, Christian faith from the Republican Party. But what often happened was, weirdly enough, I looked at the history that many of my peers were looking at and saw this tight relationship— And I strangely thought, I actually think part of the problem in that history was this idea that our faith is primarily this private individual relationship with Jesus. And yes, it in some way informs our politics, but really the rules of the game out in the political world are different rules. And and I I watched, I, I went to Liberty University and I watched Jerry Falwell Jr., the president there at the time, who was a really early supporter of Donald Trump before a lot of other evangelicals were. He was really early in there. And he gave an interview, I think, to the to the New York Times about how he thought about his vote. And his description basically was, there are two kingdoms. There's the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. And in the heavenly kingdom, you turn the other cheek and you help your neighbor and you do the good, right thing. In the earthly kingdom, you care about what's best for your country and you fight for power and you, you know, I'm paraphrasing him, but he basically had that sense that there's a different set of rules in one world than the other. And so I, I looked at the same history that a lot of my you know, peers were looking at and thought, yes, we need to disentangle our faith from the Republican Party. Those of us who grew up thinking those were synonymous, we need to do that work. But we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking these are two separate spheres, because I actually think that is part of how we got to this negative place. It was a too tight relationship, but it was also too tight of a relationship because we were able to say, yeah, what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount was for our individual lives. That was for us in church. That was for us in our neighborhoods. That doesn't have anything to say for our political life. And if we want to get out of this messy relationship we've had with the Republican Party, we actually need to say, no, what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount matters for our whole lives, for our personal lives, our public lives, our political lives, how we vote, how we interact with our neighbors, everything. 
So for, I think, people outside of the church, I think that they, they would see the evangelical body as a political body, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the very ideological and also, I think, the support that they gave to, you know, Trump. And yeah. so how how do you answer someone who's like, well, the evangelicals are political. Aren't they actually a political body? Yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand why someone would have that perspective. And again, I think that's that's coming from the right instinct to say there there is something really deeply political here. And to separate out the kind of theological trajectory of evangelicalism and the political trajectory would be to do it wrong. That wouldn't be good history or good analysis of what happened. On the other hand, though, I think there has there has to be an analysis of what was really driving what. And if was if what was driving the kind of evangelical public engagement was really political decisions. It was a commitment to certain political outcomes. If that was really driving the train, then there is a sense in which we were sort of still separating out faith and politics. You know, ultimately, like I said, we get into the voting booth and there are certain things that should take priority there. That was the way I kind of grew up thinking. Like, yes, we give to the poor personally and we in our churches care for the poor. But you get into the voting booth and suddenly there's a really different set of values that are supposed to take priority. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say is I actually think that the the way that we have separated out those things has both led us to really poor political participation and I think has led a lot of our pastors off the hook. I have a lot of sympathy for pastors struggling with really divided churches, you know, especially pastors who are like, I'm trying to just preach what the Bible says and the people in my congregation have been discipled by Fox News and they can't even hear the words of scripture anymore without it kind of being read through their partisan lens and they jump in with their arguments against it. And so I have a lot of sympathy for them, but I also, you know, spent time in seminary, was on staff at a church, paid my own price, you know, for saying what I thought was was truthful representation of what scripture said. So I don't take lightly the kind of cost that can come with that. But I think in the past, we've let ourselves off the hook. We've kind of said, my job as a pastor or as a Bible study teacher or as just a lay person in the church, when we're here together studying scripture or doing Sunday school, my job is the personal, individual, spiritual well-being of people. And the other stuff that happens, I might direct them to a voting guide. I might kind of say, hey, remember this talking head that you know we kind of trust who's in our camp. But I didn't really think, many of those pastors didn't really think, this is part of my responsibility, is to really care for how are we living our lives in public? What are, what are the political implications of the gospel? And then I think now we're paying some of the price. Like I've watched a lot of pastors who want to say the hard thing now but their people have been so discipled by partisan talking heads, by cable media, by social media, and they've really kind of lost the opportunity to have a voice in that. And I think part of the root of that difficulty is we actually have separated things out. It has seemed like we made them really close, but I actually think in some important ways we said there's a different set of rules for these two parts of our life. And that meant that you know, the theology that we had, the scripture that says really strong things about how we treat immigrants and refugees, how we treat the poor, was limited to our kind of personal work or our church work or our community work. And it didn't extend all the way to our politics in ways that it should have. Yeah. And a lot of times the church work isn't sufficient. That was what I saw. I mean, a lot of times it was serve day was like once a year or, you know, once every quarter or something. Yeah. And it definitely didn't feel like, oh, the church is doing its job. And so we don't need the government or anything like that. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, though, because of the, I think that these political ideology really kind of demonizes the poor that I think that does trickle into, I think, how churches function as well, right? Because people are no longer caring about the things that God cared about in in the Bible. And and that absolutely influences how churches are run. I mean, it's it's I, I just feel like, yeah, we've been we've been a poor witness, I think, yeah. for a very long time, both in the church and then of course, politically. And so what do you think is the solution for this? Yeah, I mean, I even while you're just talking now, I'm thinking I, I really I really think that we have misidentified the problem, first of all. We, like by separating mm-hmm. these things out, we've misunderstood what's really going on. And so I'll never forget when, when I was a college student, I was, you know, 
Liberty University invited a bunch of Republican politicians, but to keep their tax-exempt status, they also had to extend it to any presidential candidate at that period, so they weren't partisan. So Bernie Sanders came and spoke at this, you know, conservative Christian college. It was, like, (laughs) very strange. I mean, all credit to him. Whatever you think of Bernie Sanders, like, someone choosing to come into an environment that would be very hostile to them. And to his credit, he didn't come and just kind of say his piece and leave, or he didn't preach at us. He didn't, he sat down with the campus pastor in front of this like stadium of college students, mostly who really disliked him and tried to his, to the best of his ability to say, where's common ground for us? Like we care about the poor. We have different ways that we think we should address that problem. But don't you think that, you know, your religion gives you reason to care for the poor? And I'll never forget people just sitting with their arms crossed so angry. Like he was just mm-hmm. trying to extend some common ground and they were, they were shut off from it. And you could look at that and think, okay, so that's a political problem. You know, we have these great divisions. There's a lot of polarization. They have decided before they even listen to him what they think of him. That's the problem. And I think that's part of the problem for sure. But it was only a few weeks later that um, Ann Voskamp, who's like a, you know, spiritual writer, teacher, she does nothing with politics. She's the like kind of good example of like evangelical women's ministry, doesn't get into a lot of political issues. She came and spoke on Esther and she was talking about using whatever kind of fragile authority or ability that you have to make change, using it on behalf of people who don't have that limited security that you have. And she kept using the phrase, using your power on behalf of those outside the gate, the people who don't have the security that you have. Even if you feel like you don't have a lot, using it. Didn't talk about politics. She could have. I mean, there's a way that she could have taken that to a political level. She didn't at all. And people were really upset. There were a lot of students that were really frustrated and angry. And it was clarifying for me to realize what often was identified as a political problem didn't stay in that box. Like the stories that people learned when they watched Fox News, when they were on social media, when they had conversations with people who agreed with them politically, they didn't just learn vote for these policies or like support this person. As you said, they learned a whole story about wealth and poverty, about who is like me and who isn't, who are the good guys and the bad guys, what is ultimately wrong in the world and who can fix it. And so it it meant that when they heard this political presentation, they were very angry. And also when they heard, like, truthfully, just like in your community, in your neighborhood, serve people, there was a resistance to it because it was, you know, the, the story that they had learned was if people are wealthy, they have worked hard and they deserve it. And if people are impoverished, they have made poor choices and it's on them. And that story is not just a political story. That's a whole story about the world and our relationships with our neighbors and what kind of creatures humans are. And, and so I think part of the, the difficulty with the solution is that a lot of pastors, leaders in the church, a lot of people who are, you know, very, to be honest, a lot of like white evangelicals that 2016 and 2020 were disruptive to them and like felt like the sense of betrayal and felt confused. And that wasn't the first time (laughs) that, you know, American Christians have had the kind of political idolatry that we saw, but it was new for a lot of people. And I think part of the problem is they look at that, this really difficult time, and think the problem is just the policies or the politicians. And if that's outside the realm of what I think pastorally I'm supposed to do, then I can do some limited things within my area, but I don't really touch that. Instead of seeing, this is not just a problem of who they voted for. (laughs) Like This is not just a problem of what policies they support or what party they feel affiliated with. Those are problems potentially, but it's so much deeper than that. And so not only is it a spiritual issue that definitely is within the purview, I think even the political questions would be, but it is also deeply a spiritual problem that's within the purview of pastors and leaders. But also if we keep having, right before an election season, a quick little workshop at the church or like a voter guide that tries to be better than the voter guides of the past or kind of quick band-aid fixes to these kinds of things and don't address the really deep stories people have learned about themselves and their communities and their place in the world, we will just every four years have the same problem where we have to kind of pretend to be shocked that there is really deep dysfunction in a lot of evangelical churches. Because even if we sort of convinced a few people, and even that is not a given, but even if we sort of convinced a few people to vote differently or to think differently about their party, if we haven't addressed those very wrong stories about the world, then we have failed. And I think we have good resources for addressing those stories. But too often, I think we miss the potential solutions because, and I got asked to do this a lot in 2020 and in 2021 of like, come in and do a little thing where we talk about politics. And that can be useful. (laughs) I think we have good resources in the Christian tradition, especially outside of American evangelicalism to learn about political theology, but that doesn't get at the real heart of, of what's going on with people. 
as you're talking, uh, I'm just listening and thinking. So I am now a diversity and inclusion consultant, and I am thinking about how, yeah, those one-off training, those anti-bias trainings mm-hmm. are good and fun or not fun, but <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. good. They're good and they make you know people feel like they're doing something, but it doesn't actually get at process change and institutional reform and yeah. um, and training really for the, at the pastoral level, right? Of yeah. How to actually talk about things in a way that will change hearts and minds. And, and I think that, yeah, it's, it's so much harder than just one thing. And that takes investment, that takes humility, that takes true commitment to change, right? Which is, I don't know if, you know, people or institutions, churches have the resources, whether people have the emotional capacity to do yeah. that work and not feel like, feel like, okay, people are, are going to really hate me for this, right? This is like, I feel like every time I speak up against injustice, there's always going to be people who are going to push back and because they don't understand. And it's not like I know everything. I'm also growing, but just the kind of recognition that it's hard work and that we can't just kind of go by what we've known. We have to be willing to be open to hearing other voices. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's really, I feel like most of the time what I am doing when I go to churches is a pastor will ask like some version of like, could you do this like evening event that will kind of fix <laughs> what's happening in my church? <laughs> and I, I have learned over time that really the best thing I can do when I'm there is more conversations with the leaders at that church to say, like, I can give you some resources for your congregation. And maybe, I mean, as you said, I enjoy doing it, even though it's sometimes really difficult and dealing with difficult topics. It's, it's, I feel like I'm using my gifts well when I'm with people talking through those questions. But truthfully, I feel like it's, I've had a shift over time to start thinking really the things that I say to the people who asked me to come are so much more important than the things I say to their people in terms of like, it really is going to require, especially in church contexts, thinking more deeply about like what are our habits and practices about all sorts of things at an institutional level? What are like how do we do things like baptism and communion in our church? And do they reinforce some of the stories that the world tells us about kind of individual people being the most important thing, your spiritual individual relationship with Jesus being the most important thing? Are we making choices about what we do with our bodies together in this space that reinforce some of those stories instead of confronting them the way that, you know, the Christian faith has in the past and other contexts, but that's a lot longer, harder work. Like, I understand why a pastor might be frustrated if I say, hey, I think you should think about doing communion differently. And that would have some effect on your, like, political life together. And I understand why that seems like a not, a, you know, a direct response to what's happening. And yet I think if we were to think about, are we singing songs that reflect the Psalms' emphasis on justice? Are we doing things with our bodies like kneeling during confession and recognizing like that that posture does something to what we think about ourselves and our community? Are we doing communion in a way that builds community together rather than making it about our individual relationship with Jesus? Those kinds of things, I think— in 10 years have so much larger of an effect on how a community thinks about itself and its relationship to its larger community than just kind of me coming in and saying like, here's a bunch of stuff I learned in school. But I understand why a pastor might think, I want you to come in and just kind of like fix (laughs) the way we think. And the way we think is important, but all of those other things that we're doing with our bodies and our emotions and the stories we tell, those I think will have a longer term effect on communities. If, If the real goal is healthy change and faithful work in the world. Yeah, that is a deep work, right? And I think also complex. And I feel like the evangelical faith is complex, but a lot of times people want simplicity or easy answers, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I think people want, people are even like going to churches just for music or for Sunday school, or it's like, you know, I think people shop, right? And they want things that make them feel good rather than things that challenge them to uh, rethink their entire, perhaps, you know, upbringing spiritually and even ideologically and politically, right? Mm -hmm. I think that it's like, I feel so, I don't know, cynical a lot of times. Like, can the evangelical church change for the better? Can we have civil dialogue? Because it does feel like people either want to opt out of the conversation because it's too painful and too divisive, or they're on those, you know, polarized sides, just kind of going at it with no 
with nothing kind of, uh, no change, right? Just kind mm-hmm. of people just standing, standing firm in their ideas and not having kind of any middle ground. Like what you were saying about Bernie Sanders and even the, the other speaker trying to kind of push for something that is, I, I think of as very, very biblical, mm-hmm. right? But then people, because of what you said about maybe Fox News or just the uh, meritocracy, which is actually very American. So yeah. a lot of like what you're saying are like things that are actually culturally American, right? Yeah. That has now become synonymous with American Christian. Yeah. And, and yet I think those need to be separated, right? Like capitalism to me, it is what it is. It's, it's you know, it's the system that we're in, but that's not necessarily, well, a lot of times it is not Christian in the way that it's it's about greed, right? It's about materialism. And people have kind of reduced that to, or somehow melded it into the faith. Yeah. Which, and, and it's like, and if you critique it, you're no longer Christian. I mean, definitely when I was at an evangelical Christian college, a lot of the things that were presented as Christian. I knew it weren't biblical, right? But it felt like, but if someone just says it's Christian or says it's gospel and they say it with authority, then it's yeah. like, it's like, it's a conversation ender. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was both raised in all of that, like grew up in white evangelical churches my whole life. And I think almost worse, my dad was in the military, so we moved all the time. So I went to different churches in different places in the country, but they were all basically the same, which I think contributed to my sense that like, this is all there is. Because if the same church existed, you know, in all these different parts of the country, of course, that's just like what the church is, not what my expression of it is. And then went to two, you know, pretty significant evangelical institutions for my undergrad and for seminary. And it is amazing how it's just, there are certain things that are just kind of unquestioned. Like there's certain things that you just don't ask about or that you don't say, or that we all just sort of think that we all agree on. And so we don't really have to have good reasoned arguments for them. And then when people, I think a lot of my peers in 2016, what was so disorienting for them was they had gone along in their lives up until that point feeling like it all just made sense. I didn't have to ask a lot of questions about how to vote or how to think about my life in public. I mean, I remember being that way in in high school and thinking the way that I learned to think about politics was just the way that it was. And then go to college because I really care about understanding my faith better, care about understanding scripture better, read it for myself really seriously, and then watch people say and do things that just seem to me so like self-evidently in contrast with what I found in scripture. And it was really, I think one of the most challenging things for a lot of young people today who like want to stay in the church in general or really truly believe the gospel and want to to take scripture as authoritative in their lives is that they don't know how to reconcile the fact that the people that taught them to care about the gospel and taught them to care about what scripture said didn't seem to actually want to do those things when like it really came down to it politically. And I understand the like sense of despair there of just like, was any of this really real to you? Was it true? And and I feel really thankful that I, I had two parents and I had Sunday school teachers who I watched kind of ask the similar questions that I was asking. Like they were much older. So it was a lot harder. I think you've got a lot more invested in this whole kind of way of thinking and you've voted one way for a lot of your life. You're kind of committed. There's like kind of a sunk cost to that. But I watched some of those people ask those questions too and really like seriously change their mind about really important things because of what they learned and because of how 2016 really forced them to think more critically. And I truly think if I hadn't had those examples, I would feel very differently about the kind of state of the American church and the, the like state of American Christianity because I think for a lot of people, they were left without anyone as a guide for what to do next. It was like the people I trusted are not people I can trust anymore. I'm thankful that that wasn't true for me, but I, most of my peers, that was, whether it was pastors or parents, it was just like, I don't know who to ask any of these questions for. Cause I, I really do. It's not like I've given up the whole thing. I really care about having scripture form my life, but who is doing that in a way that actually seems like real. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, sometimes I feel like we're not reading the same Bible. Yes. And and someone as someone who didn't grow up in the church, I'm not tied to any kind of cultural, I think, or familial um, obligations to stay in the faith. And so it really is for me, you know, the love of God and not just for me individually, but for yeah. this world. Right. And so I think 
to see that love turn really into hate in 2016. But, you know, as we know, this is not the first time, but, but I think it, it, it was so clear, right? It's kind of the culmination of, of perhaps even, you know, the beginnings of the American church. If we, I had Dr. Jamar Tisby on, I mean, we, we did a little mini series, but also when he first came on, just kind of the his, history, the racist history of the American church and the exclusionary practices since the mm-hmm. beginning, mm-hmm. where where they people made choices. Do we follow the Bible or do we continue to, yeah. you know, treat Black folks as second-class citizens? And so I think that choices have always been made and not necessarily on the side of God. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, just to kind of see that in modern day, I think in modern day, people believe ourselves kind of, oh, well, we're no longer prejudiced, right? Right. I mean, obviously not everybody believes this, but especially people who are victims of prejudice. But but I think that in general, I feel like the white evangelical church believes itself to be free of that. Then you have someone who, you know, comes along like Trump. And I think that the obvious, right, hatred that was coming from him and then to support him. It, it felt like you can't, it's, you can't really deny it because it's yeah. like he literally ran a campaign on so much prejudice. And so I, I was like in disbelief. I just, I just was sitting and thinking this is like a nightmare, you know, this isn't yeah. real. And, and then, and then to really have that reckoning, I think a lot of us, right. A lot of evangelicals yeah. were like, that's it. You know, how can we yeah. associate ourselves with this? Because this is now, now a faith that really are turning people away from God, at least people who aren't yeah. believers. Like looking at that example, it felt, yeah, it felt very, like, I think people were like ashamed. Some of us were ashamed and embarrassed, oh, yeah. right? That this is, yeah. uh, this is what, I, I mean, how do I, what do I even say about myself anymore? <laughs> you know, what do I, how do I introduce myself? I, I don't want to be ashamed of my faith, but I, I am ashamed of how it's represented in politics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and the first thing that you said too, the are we even reading the same Bible is so mm-hmm. like that is the question I feel like a lot of people are asking because evangelicalism styled itself as the Bible people. Like we're the people who take mm-hmm. the Bible seriously and those other Christians don't. Mm-hmm. And uh I just spent this last summer writing this book about scripture and American politics and it was so it, it's impossible to look at that history, as I'm sure Dr. Tisby like knows even better than I do, but it's impossible to look at that history and think that anyone at any time in any place is just reading the Bible. Like they're just reading it and seeing the words and now, bam, I know how to live my life. Everyone is conditioned by the place and time that they're in, the concerns that they have, the interests they have, the things they want to protect and the things that they're willing to sacrifice. And I really do think it's not it's not only just about like are we interpreting it well i really think the first hurdle for a lot of evangelicals is just convincing them that it is not an inherently bad thing that none of us come to the bible with a clean slate but it is a bad thing to think you're coming with a clean slate and be convinced that you're the one it was amazing to me throughout history in america how often from the very beginning of our history especially through you know contentious periods during the civil war during the revolutionary war during the two world wars through like the 60s and 70s and civil rights movement it it like the language people used was exactly the same as the language i see people use on twitter today of like you're motivated by politics. I'm just reading my Bible. Or mm-hmm. you're biased by your concerns, and I'm not. I'm just reading the words off the page. Or you're twisting scripture. I am just faithful to it. And everyone needs to examine the way that, you know, the background that they have and the place they're in now and the pressing moral concerns of their moment are shaping how they respond. But especially people who are in the kinds of positions socially, economically, racially, where they have the ability to pretend like their position is the neutral position, have to do that so much more. And it's amazing how looking at it in history, you can see it so plainly. Like you, of course you were conditioned by the spot that you were in. It's so clear to me a hundred years later, but trying to convince people in churches today that we might not just read Jeremiah's words <laughs> to the people of Israel and just immediately understand what they mean and be in the right condition to hear them correctly and interpret them well and live them. Like, no, we won't just automatically do that well. But before we even can get to how we could do it well, it's like we first have to overcome this instinct that a lot of people have that I'm just reading the words on the page and that's all there is to it. And then you get to the place where 
you know, across generations in the church, people are saying, how could we possibly be reading the same Bible? Like, I just can't understand how that's possible. I think some of it is our inability to say, I, I am conditioned by the place that I'm in. I'm, I have interests that I bring to it and concerns, and I need other people to help me see those well. Yeah, I think that that kind of humility and also ability to say that my truth is not the only truth is— I don't know. There's a very, there's a rigidity, right, amongst yeah. a lot of evangelicals. Like, if I admit that I might be wrong about this, then maybe the whole faith is wrong, right? It's kind of this slippery slope that people talk about. And yeah. I never understood that because how can we know, how can we purport to know everything about God? I mean, we're not God. <laughs> and so it's kind of an easy logic where, of course, we have to keep learning. And and also, yes, there is this freedom, I think, that evangelicalism has that everyone can come to the Word, yeah. right, and read and participate. But it doesn't mean that just because, like you said, like just because I come, I am the expert now in everything. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, there's always context. There's always history. Yeah. And like you said, there's our biases that we bring and the biases of the communities that we're in, right? Yes, Especially if yeah. they all look like me and come from my background, it's it's impossible to kind of, I think, think about how, especially like, it's interesting because the Bible itself is not set in America in today time, <laughs> right? So it's, it's already, we're reading something that is of a different era yep. and a different part of the world. And and just to like think that we might need context for this. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's a very simple idea, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe it is the failings of some church leaders, right? Of not, are not explaining that well enough. And like you said, there's there's also obviously the, the news, you know, the kind of very biased news that we have. And certainly I think culturally, right? It becomes like something that we're used to and the, what that we learned growing up must be true rather than questioning it. But I, I I actually feel very inspired by you saying that young people are starting to really question and and wanting to think for themselves in terms of, you know, even if you grew up in Christian homes, to be able to have a whole generation of evangelicals, you know, growing up and wanting something more rigorous and mm -hmm. wanting to admit what you said, the kind of that that everything is political, right? And that we yeah. can't separate out these these systems from what we think of as faith. And, and the practice of faith, I think, is the important part, right? How do we yeah. practice faith? Yeah, and I, I really do think that's one of the kind of strange gifts. Like, it, I'm not entirely pessimistic about the churches I grew up in, in the, because one real good gift that they gave me was I, I did know people who genuinely— had been changed by Jesus and wanted to live a life that was different because of the gospel. And I knew lots of people who actually truly believed that we should study scripture well, know it well, and that it should change our lives. I think that they, like me, had you know serious areas that they were misinterpreting or were somehow able to look past certain verses or you know we avoided James and we did we didn't talk a lot about you know <laughs> foreigners in the Old Testament and um but that they did give that gift of this text should shape your life. And I think a mm -hmm. lot of young evangelicals took that really seriously. And, and I think that has played out. I mean, I, I live in a city that has a lot, it has a lot of churches because there's a big, you know, seminary at Duke, but also much more diverse kind of traditions. And um, especially along the theological spectrum, more progressive churches and more conservative churches in this one little dot in the South that normally I don't think would have quite the same range. And some of the work that some of these churches are doing with young people who say, if I'm going to be involved in this, it's going to mean we are showing up to, you know, a local meeting to talk about housing policy. And it's going to mean that we care about poverty in our city. And it's going to mean that we care about criminal justice reform in our city. There are places that are really doing that. And, it, and I think the beautiful thing about the city that I'm in is there are lots of young people, especially white evangelicals that really want that. But what they find when they come to a place here is that like, if you want to act like you're the first person to do this, that's going to be really hard in a city where there is a rich tradition of the black church being deeply involved in politics here. And so if you want to partner, if you want to learn from them, that's great. <laughs> if you want to start a brand new thing, like no one's ever thought of this, you're pretty quickly going to going to be humbled. And I think that's a, a mm. good place for a lot of people, especially in a divinity school, who suddenly are like, 
I think we should change the way church has always been done, and instead we should involve social justice. And there's a whole tradition here of churches going, oh, is that a new idea you think that you have? <laughs> like, no, actually, if, if you want to help us, if you want to learn from us, that's great. Um, if you think you're the first person to have thought about this, then, then maybe take a seat for a little bit before you jump in. And now, Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong Yoon. Today's reading is from Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement by Justin Gibney, Michael Ware, and Chris Butler. Chapter 1. Christians and Politics Nothing in this world is comparable to our inheritance in the kingdom of God. No political ideology can replace the kingdom, nor does the kingdom of God rely on our political plans and priorities. Accordingly, we should participate in politics primarily to help others and to represent our Lord and Savior in the public square. This doesn't mean we have to ignore our own interests, but we can't be consumed and misled by them. Adherence to Jesus' teachings, such as the Sermon on the Mount, will prevent us from approaching politics in a self-serving way. When in conflict, we should demonstrate that our public witness is more important than winning a political battle. This means that if our side has to do something unloving or corrupt to win, then it's better for us to lose in that situation. We once heard a Christian political activist and donor express despair to a friend about the fact that his candidate lost in a presidential election. He told his friend that the lesson he learned from the loss was that, quote, next time, we just can't tell the people what we actually want to do, unquote. This is completely wrong. It's better to lose than to sacrifice our virtue for the sake of what is politically expedient, to defend leaders' harmful policies, or to condone immorality. It is better to lose that temporal battle. If our actions don't glorify God and serve as the salt and the light of the world, then they are good for nothing. Matthew 5, 13-16. That was Deeper Thoughts with Nancy Wong Yoon. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you can get 30% off and free U.S. shipping on any book when you use the promo code DISRUPT at ivypress.com. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T. And join us next time for more of Nancy's Deeper Thoughts. So when I was in a sociology professor, other sociologists would be like, what is, what's going on with you at Biola? (laughs) And I would say, well, you know, I'm more of like a Christian, like Martin Luther King Jr. was a Christian. And then Mm. they're like, they're like, ah, like that that would be a sufficient answer because they understand, oh, well, that's a, that's a faith that is, you know, integral with social justice and actual action, right? That is, that is tangible. And that is, I think about Reverend Warnock, actually, if we're talking about politicians, I listened to his acceptance speech and he talked, he used a lot of faith-based, spiritual, scriptural references in talking about what he wants to do and how he wants to be more inclusive and that the tent is big. And I felt like I was listening to a sermon, right? Mm -hmm. Listening to him. And I, and I also thought about, Oh, I wonder what people are thinking about what he's saying. You know, people who aren't Christian, are they offended? Because that is, I think a lot of times evangelicals are taught that our faith is persecuted. Right. Right. And here he is, you know, really integrating scriptural uh, references and just concepts into his speech and people were clapping. People were inspired. And I thought, mm. this is what faith in politics should look like. We should be inspiring people to want to join in our yeah. movement, not <laughs> repel them because we're uh, hating on them and yes. name-calling and and uh, and actually taking the rights away from people, right? I don't know. I think uh, I, it, he gave me uh, hope that, that mm. we can we can do faith and politics well. Yeah. And that that's really, I mean— like I said, this summer I was studying all of this use of scripture in American politics. And it's interesting during points, especially contentious points when it came to racial justice, white people on either side, if they were defending either slavery or segregation, or if they were opposing it, tended mm-hmm. to read scripture the same way. Like they tended to look for rules. Like, let me find a verse that says, in all times and places, this is wrong or this is right. And it would, that was really hard with segregation, but they found some creative ways <laughs> to find verses that, you know, said, yes, this is required by God. But what typically happened with enslaved Black folks, with free Black folks during the civil rights movement, all across the country, it tended to instead be 
reading scripture as if it really was like one history of God working in human history, that we could rely on God to act the way that God acted in the Exodus today, and reading it and saying like, where do I see myself? What position am I in? And what resources does this give me to fight for the kind of justice and liberation that God is described in these stories as as creating for people? And that is just like, even the white abolitionists or the white people who were opposing segregation, they weren't doing that. They weren't looking at scripture and saying, this is one story of God working in human history and I need to find my place in it and the role that I play and contribute towards seeking the peace and prosperity of the place that I am in, the coming redemption of all things. They tended to say, and 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 with good intentions, right? If they were trying to be against segregation, it was good for them to kind of find arguments that might be convincing to white people. Maybe that was the role they needed to play. But it was just interesting that whether they were for or against it, they didn't tend to read scripture in that kind of way. Whereas especially, you know, the people in churches, the people who were listening to sermons where scripture was talked about that way, that wasn't being talked about that way in white churches, as you said, like that language just flowed into political work in a way that made sense. And if you're talking about it as this like story that we are inviting you to participate in, that's a very different posture. My friend, Michael Weir, who does a lot of this work in faith and politics, he talks about the resources of the Christian faith and emphasizes this is an offer. It's not, you know, a requirement. It's not me, you know, pushing something down your throat. I think this is a beautiful story of redemption and liberation, and I want you to be a part of it. This is an offer I am extending to you. And that was the posture of a lot of the people who were sometimes sacrificing their lives to see really, you know, important changes made legally and politically. And yet it was still this like gracious, beautiful offer of a beautiful story versus the people who, whether they were on the right or wrong side of that, just said, what are the rules? How do we kind of find universal rules to follow in scripture? Instead of seeing like, this is one story of God. And that, like the way you described Reverend Warnock, it's like, that's a posture that is appealing to people, even if they don't believe the story, even if they're sort of wary of Christians being involved in politics because they've seen some really bad examples of it, mm-hmm. saying, I have a beautiful story I want you to be a part of with me is a very different posture than, I know better than you the rules we should all follow, and you have to follow them too. <laughs> right. It's a posture of openness rather than closing, mm-hmm. right? Close, well, closing the door slightly. You better get in here. Yeah, <laughs> You're either in or you're out versus widening, a widening posture, which I don't know. I think that's why I had come to Christianity in the first place, right? Was this kind of openness and this unconditional love. Because if I was <laughs> if I was preached to, you know, about like what I was doing wrong, or I mean, I was only like, you know, 12 or 13, but um, if I had found out about that first, or just mm-hmm. being told that you have to be a certain way to be in this, you know, camp, I don't think I would have been attracted to yeah. the gospel in the same way. You know, it was this kind of like love and unconditional love. It really was the unconditional mm-hmm. love because I did not experience that in my own family. And I wanted to believe that that was true and that was yeah. possible. Right. So the kind of inspiration. And also just having something that is so wonderful and beautiful that I, I not seeing reflected in the people around me, but that it is possible and something to attain and to, you know, aspire to. I don't know. That is, that is like just not what I'm seeing in the church these days. And yet I know for a fact that that is attractive, right? On a personal, and that is the gospel. That's still, I still believe that. Right. And so it's it's hard to kind of explain that when I feel like it's like PR work. It's like the, the PR work for evangelicals is not so good these days. That's true. We've done yeah. A horrible job. We need to hire a better PR firm. <laughs> and, and but it's I mean, I'm just it's tongue in cheek because obviously it's based on a lot of deep seated problems. But but I feel like, yeah, it's hard to kind of talk about why I came to the faith when sure. every when all you see is actually, so this goes back to my first question. All you see is actually the political side mm-hmm. because evangelicals have become so political. I mean, so tied in with U.S. conservatism, right? And 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 if you see all those polls, evangelicals are so consistent, white evangelicals are so consistent yeah. in their voting patterns. So even though there's this, it's so weird. It's like almost like you say that there are people, people are saying trying to separate it and saying that they're, di- they're different, but yet... It's so ingrained yeah. in how they act, 
Right. So again, I, I feel like if people are on the outside, they're like, well, they're the most political people, group of people that I know. But then I think this denial, is this part of the problem that mm-hmm. this denial of who they actually are is perpetuating the problem? Yeah. I mean, I really think if you were to talk to a lot of people who are in a church where, you know, there is just a really strong sense that to be a Christian is to be a Republican. Maybe they put out a voter guide every year that just sort of, I mean, I remember the church that I was at in Dallas. We like the church didn't do this, but someone came to the parking lot. They knew their audience and stuck little like pamphlets in all of the windows of the cars that just sort of said, you know, abortion, gay marriage, you know, cutting the deficit, all this stuff and had, you know, Trump and um, Biden next to each other and sort of said, obviously, bam, 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 Trump's the right choice. Those kinds of contexts strangely enough, like they would say that, yes, it's very important to be involved politically, to be a Christian. You should fight to save the country from secularism and from atheism and all that kind of stuff. Um, And yet, like there isn't quite as much conversation in those contexts about why those are the issues that are important to us. Like what is the theological background for this? Like I said earlier, what is driving the train here? Like, is it just that we've committed ourselves to this identity and we've thought, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just, to be a Christian is to be conservative, is to be a Republican? Or have we really thought through what scripture says and tried to sort those questions out? I mean, I... I worked with young adults at this church in, you know, Dallas, Texas, really very, you know, conservative Christian area, lots of seminaries. And a lot of the young people that I talked to in that church when the 2020 election was coming up, the questions they asked were not usually, how do I sort out my desire to care for the unborn with my desire to care for immigrants and refugees? And a lot of them, that really was kind of the question I would have expected. A lot of them really did care about both of those things. But the question usually was, am I allowed to be a Christian and do this? Or like, am I, does it make me not Christian to do this? It really was more of like an identity question. And it it clarified for me that there is a real problem, both with our theology. We don't have a robust political theology that helps us think through what actually are our communities supposed to look like and what kind of creatures are humans and what does that mean for what policies we should support and what kind of leaders we should elect. Um, It was a theological problem. It was also a problem of how we thought about identity and community. And those to me are like, it's identity and community that form loyalty. And the sense of loyalty was just really strong of for me to still be the person that I grew up thinking I was supposed to be, it means voting this way. And it it finally helped me realize that the conversations I needed to have with them was not, you know, let's sort out how you can believe these things that seem to fit in different parties, which I think is a helpful question. Like we should talk about how do you figure out who to vote for, but also how do you think about your political life as being more than that one vote and being involved in other ways and not feeling Mm -hmm. like that has to be the sole sum of what you do. And so it has to represent everything you care about. I think that's an important conversation. But first we just had to say like, what do you think your identity is? Like what community do you think you most fundamentally belong to? What do you think is constitutive of who you are as a person? And at some level, it usually came down to to be a Christian was to belong to the Republican Party, was to have, be, have conservative political opinions. And so first it was like, we just, have to talk, we just have to talk about why you are who you are and what community you belong to, and then we can get to the political questions. And so in a weird sense, it's like it was so closely connected that it shaped people's identities. And yet that also meant that we weren't actually thinking at all about the relationship between the two of them. Because when something is part of your identity, you don't have to think about what it has to do with each other. I don't have to like really theologically analyze belonging to the family I belong to or being a white person in America. You know, in the same way that those things just felt natural to people, this felt very natural to them. And so it took undoing some of those questions of identity and community first. Wow. And that's a big ask of people, right? Undo the very thing that you had taken for granted. And that goes on so many levels, like you said, race, and then maybe even disagreeing with your family of origin Mm -hmm. and, um, and also your church and your childhood friends, your childhood pastor, all those things, questioning all that is, it could be too much for people, I think, right? Because it's to leave all or to to risk all that i think is the question right are you willing yeah. to risk it by asking the questions that can make them feel like you're not part of their camp you're not part of their identity anymore because by even asking the questions like even that question that they ask you am i no longer a christian if i do this 
the question they are asking it because some people are saying, yes, you're yeah. no longer a Christian, right? And which is a totally wrong response. And also, I think a very simplistic, I mean, yeah. totally wrong and simplistic idea of what is a Christian and what is not a Christian. Yeah, no, that is that is absolutely <laughs> disturbing, but right on because it resonates yeah. with everything yeah. I know about also even like dealing with racism, deconstructing yeah. bias, Yeah. right? How do we think about that? How do we kind of grow as people? Because I think that if you can come to an understanding of all of your biases and, and how that may, basically makes you not as loving of a person as God created us to be, created the possibility for us to be, that takes, again, humility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that most of us are, I think that, I think maybe, I, I, I've never said this, but I think Americans are not very humble. Yeah. <laughs> I, think we are, yes. I think we're really, I think we are really, really prideful. I mean, yeah. we're, we take pride in so many things and we're so... We're so like America's best, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that means, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I think that is the it's a result of all the power, right, that yeah. we have had in the world, and and I think that we take for granted, and that we misuse and exploit, and yeah, and has formed us in very sinful ways, I think, and and that's obviously in the Bible, right? People who yeah. are privileged and powerful are always unable to see the truth because they're so kind of you know in it. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> but I'm yeah. so thankful, Caitlin, for, for you, just this conversation with you, because I do feel like, you know, you are a young person, a young evangelical who grew up in and went to really conservative institutions, right? And can come out able to not just kind of uh, critically examine everything, but also be a voice for your generation to be able to question that and hopefully be an example to others that it's possible to question and not feel like you're no longer Christian and and possible to admit that and learn, I think, about the political. I think people also feel like it's too much. It's too complicated. But but what they are not admitting is that they are already instruments of politics, right? Um, And so, and it's better to know what you're doing (laughs) than to just follow like sheeple, you know, of and and I think I mean I get it because I think even I feel like I, I participate in political conversations, but I'm always learning because yeah. I think actually one thing that came out of 2016 was I learned so much about our government because there were so many <laughs> yeah. organizations and parts of our government that I didn't fully understand and take for granted. Like you know when the environmental agencies were being dismantled, I was like, wait a minute, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I need yep. to know about these because that doesn't sound right. <laughs> And so it really did. I think sometimes, you know, unrest does force us to to see what where we stand. Like you said, what do, what kind of people do we want to be? Yeah. What do we care about? What what are we going to fight for? What are we going to change about ourselves and the world around us in order to create a more just and loving world, right? And and because when those things are taken away or or tr- people are trying to destroy those things, it's like we better we better learn fast, right? What is going on so that supposedly we're in a democracy, mm-hmm. we should be able to vote and organize for change in a positive way. So um, thank you, Caitlin. I just really enjoyed this conversation so much. And, you know, I think you are, you are, I mean, maybe you're not the final episode of the season, but you are the final episode that I'm doing this season. And I'm just so inspired by you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nancy. 